Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to another episode of Investment Fridays with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. It is currently July 6th. We are recording for July 7th, 2023. And we're going to talk about some stuff. Uh, We actually have some questions uh, from a listener that we will uh, go over in the next, you know, second half of this podcast. Um, And as a reminder, if anyone else has questions, literally any anything that pops up that you're like, I wonder if Brad could talk about this, send me an email or shoot me a message on any of the social media platforms um, that you might follow me on and we'll ask Brad the questions. So Brad, welcome again. And what's up this week? Good morning, Hannah. Uh, lots of things. I just want to reiterate, we love questions on this podcast. So no matter if you believe it, it's it's a dumb question. There is no such thing as dumb questions, except the questions that are not asked. So we would love to hear your questions, and I would love to address them if I can. If I can't, then I will get back with you on the next podcast, because I will research the answer for you, because I love to do that. Right. So, Hannah, if you've been watching, things are exciting. This week in the markets, it has... It's a it's a holiday shortened week with the Fourth uh, of July holiday on Tuesday, um, but that has not stopped the economic data from coming in, and that certainly has not stopped uh, the exciting market reactions to that data. Uh, a couple of points are economic data is coming out; it's slowing, but it's still it's still we're still growing in a pretty decent way. Um, we had an ADP employment report come out today which was almost twice as much as the expectation. So what is it, why is that important? Well, it means that there's a lot more people hiring out there and getting jobs and getting good jobs relative to what the economists expected. So what, what does that mean for us as investors? Well, immediately the US bond market sold off, meaning their prices went down. And so now those yields are increased because there's an inverse relationship between the two. And so now as the yields go up, the people in equities and stocks start to say, well, geez, if I can get five and a half percent on a six month US treasury bill, why take the risk of an equity market that may pull back? They may have some volatility going forward. And so you're starting to see that, that pullback in equities They've had a wonderful first half of the year um, from the S&P 500. So equities have done extremely well. In fact, probably better than they should have given the context of the situation. But they had a great first half. And now in the second half, I think people are saying, you know, yields are going up. Interest rates are more likely going up. Why own the risk of equities when I can lock in a good, sure, secure five and a half percent plus on some fixed income instruments. Um, so the equity market is selling off today um, relative to that. Uh, also with the, F, the the Federal Open Market Committee, it's the committee of the Federal Reserve that sets interest rate policies. 
Uh, the chairman of that committee, Jerome Powell, who we've discussed in the past, has come out and said, hey, we believe, we continue to believe we're going to increase interest rates at least one or two times this year between now and, and the end of the year. Um, that is a surprise to, to, to market participants because most of us thought that we were going to get to the five to five and a quarter percent range and we were going to, they were going to pause and kind of see how things play out in the economy because they raised interest rates so quickly and so much that it's tough to gauge how that's going to impact smaller companies, how that's going to impact households, how that's going to impact the housing market. We don't know because these the impact of these policy decisions take a long time to get through the entire economy. And so those variable and 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 the variable lagged effects have yet to be seen somewhat in the in the real economy. Um, but again, the financial markets are 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 trying to adjust to that new reality with equity markets selling off a little bit here in this in the third quarter, the beginning of the third quarter, and uh, and the bond markets selling off a little bit to entice uh, more of these 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 fixed income investors who who for the past couple of years have really been in the equity market, even though they probably shouldn't have. So that is a quick market update. Um, <laughs> any questions, Hannah, that you have? Yeah. So the thing that was just um, kind of sparking for me there, I was thinking back to 2022. Um, remind me what the bo the bond market did in 2022. 2022 was not a great year for bonds. Uh, it was down negative teens. So negative 13% is, is not a good return for any market, let alone the quote unquote safer bond market. And yeah. so it was a, it was a, it was a pretty disastrous 2022 for bonds. And that hasn't happened. Was that since the, since the thirties, is that correct? That we've That's correct. We've never seen that no. that kind of down pressure on the bond market, and that was all because of the like steady increase in interest rates. Maybe not all because, but primarily yeah. because of the steady increase in interest interest rates. Which um, I think we mentioned this last time too. The interest rates have been increasing for eighteen months at this point. Right. Yep. Right. Um, Roughly around there. So what we're seeing now, and this actually um, kind of plays in with some of the questions that we we got too, is this, like you're saying, this balance in the bond versus stock markets. And one of the, I saw an article just this week that was um, saying that most retirees or a lot of retirees right now have been much more aggressive than the, you know, typical 60, 40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds um, portfolio of the past that was recommended when bond interest rates were higher, right? When you could reasonably assume five, six, eight, 10% on some bonds, you know, yeah, you can put some of that, you know, again, 60, 40 portfolio, 40% into that part um, of your retirement portfolio and it would be okay. Well, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen bond yields being high enough to support 
a 60-40 portfolio um, in quite a while now. And so we've seen a big shift, a shift into equities for people who do actually need income from their portfolios, but they're still, you know, for lack of a better term, rolling the dice um, in the equity markets more so than we've seen in the past. So do you see this as this shift into a higher interest rate environment overall, um, being able to balance, especially those retirement portfolios or for more conservative investors, right? Does this start to um, give us give us some some sense of a shift back towards more balance? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, really, it's been since 2001, 2002 that uh, the bond markets haven't offered a very good current yield, meaning the interest rate that you're receiving from your bonds hasn't been really that good. You know, and so they've been and, and for the most part, a lot during that time, the Federal Reserve was suppressing yields. They were keeping them down to help the economy heal from a lot of different for a couple from a couple of different crises during those times. And so you had these lower than normal yields. And so people that couldn't live on that yield had to search for return in other places. And one, one of the places they did was trying to find higher dividend stocks that would pay them enough to do that. So you have a group of marginal buyers or marginal investors in stock that probably otherwise wouldn't have been there during that time frame. Now, fast forward 20 years, here we are in 2023, where yields are getting to the point where they're pretty attractive from a, from a, from a, from a short-term and an intermediate-term perspective, particularly as inflation comes down and continues to fall, hopefully into the target range of the Federal Reserve eventually. But that marginal group of buyers are right now doing the math. They're trying to figure out, is this the time to step out of stock and into these bond yields that I can lock in five, six percent for a 10 year for a 10 year corporate bond or 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 a similar muni bond with the tax equivalent yield in the six in the five and a half to six range. Is that good enough to entice me to sell my stock? For certain people, it is. And you're going to start to see that rotation, you know, from from a heavy stock portfolio back to more of a balanced portfolio. In fact, the Wall Street Journal, I, I don't know if that's the article you're referring to, but they did a study and they said, uh, I think Vanguard did a study. And, and there's a number of group, 20 uh, percent of people over 80 years old have a majority of their portfolios in stock. Yeah, that's that is the the study. That's OK. So. Mm -hmm. Historically, that is not a, that has never occurred. I mean, you have you know some of the the older couples or or gentlemen or or gentle or or women who, you know, are risk tolerant. You know, they're gonna they're gonna bet the farm forever, and and good for them because they can handle it, I guess. But most people, most people are not risk tolerant. In fact, they're risk averse. Mm -hmm. So as they get older, particularly, they become more risk averse because the volatility in those assets really starts to bother them. They want to lock in that steady income. And that's where today uh, you're going to see a lot of those individuals and families shifting a little bit more into the bond bond era or the bond area um, from stocks. So what's interesting 
to me, seeing seeing this information, you know, first partially in hindsight, because we've got some data from last year and then what's continuing to happen this year as well. It almost feels as if that that cratering of the bond market was necessary in order to allow yields to come back up to this more um at more normal level right where like it, yeah if you lend someone money which a bond right is is you're lending this institution or municipality money and they're going to pay you back in full over time you expect to be paid a percentage for that and it just wasn't there for so long there was hardly any yield um so yeah it's it's interesting how how big the shift was but I, I don't know if we would have gotten there necessarily if we didn't we wouldn't right if it didn't come down 13 percent last year it was absolutely necessary to take that over uh over time it, it had to adjust back to more normal levels and i think that's one of what jerome powell is trying and the f and the federal open market committee is trying to do is take away that zero interest rate policy which they they implemented for a very, very long time where, hey, we're at zero to 25 basis points or at zero to a quarter percent on the Fed funds rate, which effectively takes short-term rates so low that across the yield curve, it makes, makes yields very unattractive. You know, one of the things that I think they did, um, uh, and I think that historians and economic uh, historians will have to work this out is, how fast they did it mm. and how how long they waited to do it. And that's where they got into trouble is they waited too long. Um, had, they, had they acted sooner, they could have drawn this out over a couple of years instead of boom, percent mm. all within, within 18 months. I mean, that was a very fast rate. Um, yeah. In fact, it's the fastest rate since 94. 1994. And because it was the rapidity of that, that, that interest rate increases, that's what caught some of the banks that we had earlier this year in the spring. That's what caught them off guard. And, and they, and they were not able to adjust their balance sheets for that risk and consequently are no longer in business. Mm. Interesting. Um, the, oh, this, okay. So this, it's a little bit of a, a side into, into this, but I want to bring in um, the topic of market breadth okay. again. So let's, let's kind of tie that in as well, because even though we're seeing a little bit of a pullback today, um, we still, the, what we've talked about the last couple of months as well, the top six or seven stocks in the S and P 500. So those really mega cap tech stocks, we all know what we're talking about uh, are the ones that have been driving the vast majority of the returns in the entire you know, stock market so far this year. And some of the questions that I've been getting about that from people have been, well, is this, is this real then? Is it real? If 493 of the top 500 largest companies in the US are not really participating in this market rally, is it real? And so what what nuances do we have on that this month that we maybe didn't have last month or the month before? Um, 
first of all, I, I share their concerns. I share their concerns. Um, I'm going to go through the negative of it, and then I'm going to walk through kind of maybe uh, why I think it's not going to be disastrous for, for the U.S., okay? Right. Uh, one is seven stocks on average, 82% through the first six months of this year, okay? Amazing. Amazing. Now, what we have to, what we cannot forget, but people tend to do is in 2022, they had disastrous returns. Tesla was down two thirds of basically 67% last year, 2022. And it, it is done very, very well this year. Okay. But again, if you started, if you owned it January, if you bought it January 1st of 22, you're still down quite a bit um, mm. on that position. Now, not many people buy it at the high and then hold on to it through 18 months. But it, a lot of those seven stocks are up so much because of the fact they were down so much last year. Now, there are some fundamental factors that have driven have have kind of been the the seed of this rally for certain stocks like Nvidia. Nvidia makes the chips that make that that really help artificial intelligence, all right? So, artificial intelligence is a new wave of innovation that is going to disperse itself with throughout the US and the global economy. So, Nvidia is in the, you know, kind of in the seat of, oh yeah, we make these chips. We're the number one and so those, that stock price has really um, up significantly, basically 200% year to date um, because of that. Now, has it got ahead of itself? Probably. Even the S&P 500 itself, driven by those seven stocks, its relative straight index got to about 70, a little over 70. That is really, really high. And it means that in the short term, we're probably going to have a pullback in that headline index, meaning those top seven stocks. So that coupled with the valuation of these stocks is pretty heady right now. So in those seven stocks, which, you know, I think investors used as a, hey, they sold off so much. And this year, because we don't know what's really going on with the markets, we're going to buy those as a safe place. Because one, they've sold off so much, and two, they generate a lot of free cash flow, and so we're going to go ahead and and purchase those stocks um, because we know they're going to do well. Well, these things can go up too much. They, in certain respects, some of them have, and some of them haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something we need to watch out for and be a little cautious of because the market valuation indicators are 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 giving a warning sign of just saying, hey. Maybe these seven stocks have gone ahead of themselves um, year to date. And then you have er, you have interest rate increases that may be continuing to come down, come down the pike. Right. And we have um, earnings that based on the interest rate increases, based on a slowing economy, but still growing, um, you know, may not may not. Uh, materialize as much as we would like. So cautious on those seven, okay? Everyone else, I think, um, is in a good place. Jerome Powell said that we're only having one to two more 
interest rate increases, and they're going to see how those are rolling through the economy. Hmm. It's really important to understand that interest rates affect every financial market instrument out there. They affect the value of every business in the world. They affect the value of every piece of real estate, every bond, everything. They, that it is the, They are the underlying uh, rate by which everything is valued. Okay, so it's important to, to understand that context. Once they pause, I think the economy is slowing, but will start to reaccelerate. The, the, the consumer is in still a very, very good place. They still have very moderate debt. Their income levels are growing pretty decently. The job market clearly is, has been pretty healthy for them. And so people can continue to, to move up that way. So what's going to happen is I think you're going to see it, the market broaden out and those top seven stocks may not, they may come down a little bit, but on a relative basis, they're probably going to stall out in their returns for a number of months. And the smaller cohort is going to grow and they're going to catch up with a lot of those, those market leaders. And that is going to increase that breadth. Okay. Because again, we said it last time, an equity market rally that has broad breadth, has a lot of stocks participating, is generally much healthier than a very, very narrow market. Mm -hmm. A very narrow market means very few stocks are participating. And without, without a broad breadth, it means maybe one industry is doing well as opposed to the broad uh, the broad context of the economy and the financial markets. Yes. So what we're to kind of sum that up, we are looking at interest rates again, as a benchmark of not just what it costs to get a mortgage or a loan or, you know, interest rates at a bank, um, but truly um, seeing how those trickle through in effect our stock market as well and valuations and cost of borrowing and all of that business valuations across the board. And those top seven stocks that have been doing phenomenally well so far this year, um, partially is due to the fact that they did so dismally, terribly in 2022. So that, um, that piece of context as well. Um, and finally, that you know, the the last four hundred and ninety three stocks that haven't quite participated yet so far this year um, in this market rally, that once we have a little more clarity on the interest rates, if they are going to have one more or two more, that we're still kind of waiting to hear from Jay Powell about this, um, that those might then actually pick up. So when that pause is is, paused, paused, like, hey, we're going to stop here, that little bit of certainty could help those remaining stocks to lift up into the yes. actual market rally that that we've been seeing from the top seven. Perfect. Perfect. The only thing I want to put a caveat in is if these interest rates continue to going up and it creates a credit crisis in the banking industry. Hmm. Um. I don't think it will, but if it does, then you'll see the breadth 
broaden out, but it'll be on the downside because those seven stocks will drop quite precipitously relative to the other stocks that haven't done nearly as well. Just because in a credit crisis, it affects all, all companies, it affects all asset prices. And so that would, that would create a problem. But again, I don't see that happening. Um, even the, even during the financial market turmoil, the regional banking turmoil earlier this year, the Fed stepped in, increased liquidity to make sure that those credit markets were functioning fine. That's right. That's right. Okay. So let's go to, we have two questions. Um, awesome. Two questions from Bob. Bob is usually listening from Huntsville, Alabama. So hi, Bob. These are straight from him. Um, question for Brad. Regional banks and office REITs are by and large radioactive to the general investing public. So that's his little um, opinion there, which we appreciate. But to the savvy investor, is that a place to find a bargain since the market in general is expensive? Um, yes and no. Again, I'm a two-handed economist. <laughs> so uh, what Bob is talking about is exactly correct in the sense that Anytime there's carnage in one part of a market, there is opportunity, right? Uh, it's like the Chinese symbol for risk is actually also can be interpreted as opportunity or return. So in every market turmoil, there is opportunity and you need to be able to sift through um, kind of the garbage to, to weed out the real opportunities to take advantage of them. So Bob, yes, there are some opportunities. However, um, individual investors to gain access to those opportunities, we need to hire specialized managers who can take advantage of that opportunity. Because unless you have the, the expertise in office real estate, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, it's very difficult to discern, is this an opportunity or is this a, just a garbage piece of real estate that's going to have to be repurposed? And it's going to require a lot of investment capital to do that. Um, I have a number of friends that are doing that and they are on the hunt um, for, for looking for some of these deals. For example, uh, roughly $300 billion in commercial real estate loans mature in 2023. Unlike a home mortgage, they're not 30-year loans. They're much, much shorter term. And when those come due, you have to re-up. You have to re-qualify for your mortgage, your commercial mortgage. And so to do that, to make the equity to loan to value ratios work, it's possible you're going to have to dump a, a, some money into it just to refinance the, 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 the building you've always owned. So it can get a little frustrating for landlords or, business or, or building owners that don't necessarily want to do that. They may think, you know what, I'm not, I'm going to let this property go because it's not that great. I'm going to sell it on the market. I'm going to probably earn a little bit of money on the sale because I've owned it for at least five to 10 years. I'm going to, I'm going to take my profit out of it, let someone else finance it, and I'm going to go look for another, another property. Well, that is where my friends in the commercial real estate investment space are looking for those diamonds in the rough. Mm. The problem is, is there's a lot of rough out there. And so they are searching diligently, but 
to, to gain access to those again, um, you, you know, finding a good manager that can, that can, that can put you in, um, put you in to participation with that, that diamond in the rough, it is a very critical aspect. So that wouldn't, what you're saying here is that that's not necessarily like buying a regional banking ETF or buying a commercial real estate ETF. That's just really broad index based or um, anything like that. No, this is a very, this is a, instead of a shotgun approach, which would be like the ETF example you just used, this is a sniper. You're wanting to find that one building that for some reason is undervalued. You're going to buy it. You may have to in, in, inject some capital or change some things to lease it up. And that's the diamond in the rough. It's a very active, um, active investment strategy that requires changing it in some way. So a, a great analogy to the ETF is class A property, class A office property is the office property that generally you drive by that is really, it's really well taken care of. It's usually almost always rented out. You can see lots of cars in the parking lot. Those class A ones are kind of the ETF. You can buy and hold those, but the returns are far less. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm talking about is possibly the strip center or the, the, the office building that may have a few cars in the parking lot. They may have, but most of it may not be rented out currently. And so, and it's old, kind of looks dingy. It needs a, a, some refurbishment. That is what I'm talking about. That's the kind of the rough that they're looking at every single one of those properties to determine can I get this turned around and, and earn those excessive returns or excess returns by doing that? Um, and that's right now, that's the marketplace for office right now. Um, but for the majority of it, I would probably stay away from. Mm, interesting. And then what's your take on regional banks as well? That was part of the question as well. Yeah. So regional banks, uh, love them. Um, don't know if I love them right now. Uh, until we get over and we see how the, the, the office building, because 70% of office of commercial real estate is financed at the regional bank level. Oh, so, so they're connected. The, yeah, they're connected. So it's not the city banks. It's not the B of A's. It's not the Wells Fargo's that finance most of those, those loans. It's the regional banks that do that type of lending. And if, it becomes a problem. We're gonna. It, it's gonna become a problem not only in the office CRE space, but also in the regional bank balance sheets. And that's what one of the tipping points that I'm watching very closely to see. You know how the delinquencies on regional banks balance sheets for office commercial real estate, in particular, how many how many delinquencies, how fast they're growing to see if there's going to be a problem later this year. Mm, interesting. We'll we'll come back to that. Okay. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah, we'll 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 keep an eye on that one. Um and then this one kind of goes back to the bond question of are there investment opportunities in construction credit, especially industrial construction? Uh yes, there is. Um again, a lot of that lending um has 
So construction financing in general, uh, a few banks still do it, but a lot of that lending has nav or has migrated over to private credit credit facilities, meaning um, instead of being a publicly traded bank or a, a private bank, it would be um, a fund that is set up specifically for the reason of financing construction and, and building. Ooh, give, so, us, give us a for instance on this. For like. instance, um, let's say I'm a developer and you're you're a lender, okay? And um, I'm gonna I'm I'm thinking about building a warehouse, not even a warehouse. Let, let's say a, a factory in downtown Cincinnati. Um, found a good building, but I need to kind of renovate the whole thing. So it's like, almost like a knockdown and, and rebuild. So I go to you and I say, hey, this is what I want to do. And based on history, I mean, based on everything, you're going to analyze my situation and the project and determine whether it's financeable or not. Now, at a bank, you have regulations that determine what you can finance and what you cannot. Um, at a private fund that is specifically set up for these type of financings, you don't necessarily have that issue. It's not, you don't have to, you, you, you have a lot more freedom in what kind of lending standards you require. And so that is a lot of, a lot of the, the construction financing per se has migrated to funds, which you can get them done. It's just at a little bit higher cost. And it may be a, the credit monitoring may be a little different than you're used to at a bank. Um, Interesting. So, like, yeah. So again, these historically have been the more aggressive, which is why banks don't tend to like to do construction credit anymore is because they're riskier. And so if you don't want to have a lot of risk on your balance sheet as a bank, then you know that may not be that that may not be a good piece of business to do for you to do. Whereas a fund where people are are investing money, commingling that money into a pool, and they they're patient, right? They're they're looking for returns on an annual basis. They're investors. They're long term in nature. They're not. It's not based on depositors' funds to fund that construction credit. So because that pool has their investors are longer term in nature, they can be patient with that construction credit. So that so if you if you notice the riskier lending businesses have gone towards the private funds, oil and gas, construction credit, um, some of those types of issues have gone to private funds, whereas regulated banks have kind of shied away from that, similar with agriculture as well. So would that be um, more in the, what do you want to call that? Um, just private investment market? 100%. Yep. Okay. That's the private credit market um, altogether. In fact, it really got a boost. It had, private credit's been around for, very, for a very long time. Um, but really after the 2008, 2009 issue with the banks, um, it became, it, it grew substantially particularly as oil and gas companies um, started getting their funding cutting cut off. 
if you don't remember back then, oil prices were low. It was very difficult um, to for for an oil company to get to get a loan. So you know that type of credit migrated to the private world and and has done has done very very well since. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, those are so those are the questions um, that we had for today, and I I feel like we went through a lot. We did go through a lot. We went through a lot of stuff today. Um, So yeah, I think that's a really good place to pause. And like you said, it was a, it's been a short trading week. They had half day on Monday, um, closed market closed on, on Tuesday. So we've got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we'll see how the week closes up, but this is the first week of Q3. So that seems crazy also. Yes. How did we get here? 2023 is going very, very quickly. <laughs> yes. It seems to be anyways. I don't know about anybody else, but I think it's starting, it's flying. So yeah, I feel that I am feeling that so much right now. So again, we're going to do this every single month. If you have any questions, send them our way. Um, and if we don't have answers immediately, if you send them ahead of time, we will have answers because we'll have time to research. Um, but yes, we love doing that um, that research for you and let us know. Let us know what you think. And if anything sparks your interest and you want to learn more, don't hesitate to reach out to me um, or to Brad directly at Juncture Wealth Strategies. So thanks again for being here and we will see you next month. Sounds great. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.